The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shimong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. By the power and the truth of our efforts this evening, may all beings everywhere be free of sorrow and suffering and the causes of sorrow and suffering. May all beings be content. May they live in safety. May all beings everywhere be reconciled, young and old, parent and children, siblings, friends, neighborhoods, communities and nations, all beings everywhere. May all war and genocide cease. May all forms of discrimination and injustice cease. May all beings everywhere enjoy abundance and prosperity. This is our prayer. This is our intention. Andy, can we get the lights up a little bit, please? Tenderness does not choose its own uses. It goes out to everything equally. We wandered into a corner of the Central Park Zoo, and there, despite the dozens of tourists pointing and tapping the glass, two monkeys were squatting on a perch of stone. To our surprise, they were both in deep sleep, their dark heads bowed to each other, their small frames limp. What was amazing was that their small, delicate hands were touching, their monkey fingers leaning into each other. It was clear that it was this small, sustained touch that allowed them to sleep. As long as they were touching, they could let go. I envied their trust and simplicity. There was none of the human pretense at independence. They clearly needed each other in order to experience peace. One stirred, but didn't wake, and the other, in sleep, kept their fingers touching. How deeply rewarding the life of touch. Each was drifting inwardly, dreaming whatever monkeys dream. They looked like ancient travelers praying inside a place of rest made possible because they dared to stay connected. It was one of the most tender and humbling moments I have ever seen. Two aging monkeys weaving fingertips as if their touch alone kept them from oblivion. I pray for the courage to be as simple in asking for what I need to be. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening <clears throat> we will not have enough time this evening to talk about the length and breadth and height and depth of tonight's topic. So I've decided to break it into two 
evenings this month and next month. And tonight we're going to focus on what we may identify as learning to love ourselves without the stuff. Without the stuff. And in order for us to truly approach the discussion or the inquiry, we need to take a look at it from a place that is conducive for each of us to truly grasp, understand, and actualize it in our lives. That is to say, as I often tell people, the culture and society in which most of us interact in on a daily basis is not conducive for spirituality, is not conducive for friendship, is not conducive for freedom, is not conducive for love. And so much of the issues surrounding loving without the stuff, love without the stuff in our lives, requires us to create a conducive environment in order for it to live and thrive and grow and so forth. Tonight is about intimacy. It is about one of the most essential requirements in loving oneself or loving other. And so we're going to take a look at the nature of intimacy and how it operates and functions. And one of the ways we're going to do this right now is to get these cushions out of the way and bring you closer to me. Yes, please. So once the cushions are gone, if the rows can move up, I'd really appreciate it. And maybe again, put the light back to where it was. This is too. We need the right ambiance here. One of the reasons why I've asked you to move closer to me is not only because I love seeing your eyes, but because tonight is about you and me. Tonight is about you and the person sitting next to you and behind you. Tonight is about you and everyone. And so we need to make this journey this evening together. And in order to make this journey together, just as in order to make a journey of love and loving oneself and others, we need to do it together. One of the fundamental teachings of the Buddha has to do with the interconnectedness of all things, the interconnectedness we share with each other. And once again, our society has taught us quite the opposite. We learn culturally, we learn in society this kind of individual approach to living life. And it is that individuality which I believe has reached the level of the pathological in our society today that continues to keep us separated. So I want to read you a quote from Robert F. Kennedy. He said these words, and I forget what city it was in, shortly after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. In fact, he said it in conjunction with announcing 
to the crowd he was speaking before about the assassination. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country. And if you remember those days, those of you who were around, riots had broken out all over the United States, billions and billions of dollars of property destroyed, some lives also in, in this uh, you know, event and so forth, except that city, except where he was speaking. Perhaps he touched something. Perhaps the words touched something in their hearts. And hopefully, as I believe, reawakened something in him that needs to be reawakened if we are ever going to see what we all dream of seeing. So the first thing we need to do is to take a look at the myths surrounding love. And even though love is inherent for all of us, loving is a skill. And we need to make that distinction. Love is inherent to all of us. It is not only inherent, it is what the Buddha identified as our identification. It is who we are. It is what we are. And even though that may be true, loving is a skill that we learned early on in our life. We learned it from birth. Forget it and need to remember it and cultivate the ground for it to be nurtured, and for it to be sustainable. And that's what these two evenings are going to be about. How do we remember how to love ourselves, which is essential not only for the individual, but for the world at large? How do we remember how to love ourselves without the stuff in order to be able to love other without the stuff? And the first step, again, as I said a moment ago, has to do with remembering. It has to do with what you and I were born with. Often I tell my students, if you never know the difference between what you brought with you and what you've picked up along the way, there are no possibilities. There will be no possibilities. So much of what we need to do this evening is take a look at what we brought with us and what we've picked up along the way. And much of what we've picked up along the way and have contrived and manufactured to be our reality is not. In fact, most people in contemporary spiritual life are looking for the truth to fit their reality. And given most people's reality, the truth is never going to fit. And so much of the lessons in learning how to love ourselves and others involves embracing inconvenient truths. Inconvenient truths. Love, I say, and spirituality are synonymous. That ultimately, spirituality is the means by which we remember 
love and loving and we cultivate the ground for it to be nurtured and sustainable. So, so spirituality and love are simultaneously cohabitating the space in which we want love to show up again in our lives. And so when we take a look again at most people's idea and notion about loving themselves, usually it involves a very egocentric approach. It involves, when I tell people you need to take care of yourself, you need to love yourself, what they usually do is they go home and they take care of themselves and love themselves and exclude everybody else. And then they come back and they say to me, Roshi, I went home and I, I, you know, I exercised, I changed my diet and everything else, but I'm still not happy. And what's interesting is that scientists, particularly in the psychology field, went to great lengths to take a look at what causes happiness. What are the causes for happiness in a person's life? And they spent many years traveling all around the world, interviewing different people from different cultures, uh, experimenting uh, with the neurological you know, uh, kind of science tests to see how happiness affects the brain and affects the health. And one of the things they discovered is that the very same things that cause happiness or contentment in a human being's life are the same things that are involved in loving oneself and other. The very same things that cause happiness and contentment in your life are the very same things that cultivate the ground for and nurture the sustainability of loving oneself and others. So you and I are born lovers. What we bring with us into life is love. We bring that with us. What happens after that is that we learn the peculiar way in which we love ourselves and others. And most of the time, for most people, those lessons have to do with, again, the myths surrounding love, the myths surrounding <coughs> happiness. The paradox of life is the fact that what really makes us happy and also a benefit to the people we love and care about and the world around us is the very first lesson we ever learned in life when we came into the world and reached out for a sign of it's okay and embraced our mother's love for us which was stuffless. We've never stopped looking for that again and again. Unfortunately for many their search continues to take them to all of the wrong places. Places where they will never find it no matter how many times they go there. That's a quote from my book. If you want to read the rest, you've got to buy it. Okay? And so forth. So, when my daughter was born, I had the privilege, and if you're a parent and this happened for you, you know what I mean. It, it was transformational. It was an experience for me that has never left me of witnessing her birth, being there when she came out of her mother's womb. And she was, she had arrived. And the experience, the details of the experience were that, you know, when she came out and, and, you know, Len, Dr. Grossman, cut the umbilical cord, the, a team took her away and cleaned her up, and I followed over with them. And I was kind of like relaying back to her mother, you know, oh, she's so gorgeous. Oh, you know what you say? Oh, she's smiling, and so forth. And while she was, when they finished 
cleaning her up, they laid her down, and I was kind of like leaning over, and my hand was like just sitting on the table. And she reached out and grabbed my finger. And as most of us know, when I picked her up and took her to her mother, she reached out and grabbed her mother. We are hardwired for the essential ingredients that make up what we call love, what we identified as love, and we bring that nature with us. Spirituality is the means by which we accomplish the singular purpose for our birth. Spirituality is the means by which we achieve learning how to love and how to be loved. When people ask me what is the purpose of life, what is the meaning of life, today I am convinced that it has to do with learning to love and to be loved. And this learning, more accurately, is again a remembering. A remembering of a time when we did it stuffless. When we did it without the stuff. And if we never remember that, and if we never take seriously what is necessary in order to, again, understand that and actualize it in our everyday lives, there will be suffering, and suffering will compound. So once again, when scientists took a look at the elements or the, you know, the components of a happy life for human beings, they discovered that they were the very same elements necessary, if you will, or at least I translate it that way. They discovered they were the very same elements necessary for loving and fulfilling and sustainable relationships. <coughs> so one of the essential teachings of Buddhism has to do with the Buddha's understanding that the amount of love, the quality of love that we are able, such as the quality of compassion that we are able to offer another, is equal to the love and compassion we give to ourselves. Because you cannot give what you do not have, you see. So entirely dependent upon how you learn and sustain the knowledge and wisdom of loving another begins with how you love yourself every day of your life. And most of us do not. Most of us, when we take a look at, you know, the contemporary human being in our society, most of their life activity revolves around becoming more of something they think they need to be, becoming better at something they think will make their life better, and becoming different than who they are because they are convinced somewhere in their lifetime that who they are this original self, as the Buddhists refer to it, is never going to be good enough. And that rat race, or that trap, that cycle of living, seems to have an endless approach. Seems like there's no end to that. And what I have found in 38 years of talking about this is that people who pursue what I call the more, the better, and the different syndrome, people who live their life out of that syndrome, uh, they get more, they get better, they get different, and then they want more and better and different again. And so we are hardwired not to pursue happiness, but to know it. 
And often uh, people have heard me say, as Americans, we have mastered the pursuit of happiness, but know nothing about life and liberty or freedom. You say true freedom. Because true freedom involves the ability to love oneself stuffless, the way our mothers loved us from the first moment of our life. And so the Buddha, when he was asked to define love as, a, as the Buddha, he immediately compared it to the love a mother has for their child. And, he's, and today, people, Buddhists all over the world practice a meditation called metta meditation, which has to do with loving kindness. And in the sutra that describes that, he says those very words. In the sutra that uh, talks about the bodhisattva's way, He uses those very words to send out into the world, wherever you go, the love a mother has for her child, that type of love. And so when we take a look at that love, and when we take a look at what, you know, a loving mother done for us, did for us, and when we take a look at the early stages of our life, we find that there are three fundamental pillars, what I call the three pillars of loving oneself and others, of loving without the stuff. So before we talk about them, once again, I want to make sure you're clear. When you don't know the difference between what you brought with you and what you've picked up along the way, suffering will compound and there are no possibilities. And what you've picked up along the way is the stuff. So one of the mistakes that many people make about spirituality and spiritual practice has to do with this notion that it's about accumulating more stuff, though we call it spiritual, you see. But real spirituality has to do with the stripping the way and the letting go of all the stuff that prevents us, as Rumi said, your work is not to go in search of love, but to recognize and dismantle all of the stuff, and I'm paraphrasing, you've collected in your life that prevents you from seeing it right where you are, that prevents you from seeing it within yourself. And with that, Rumi defined what I call authentic spiritual practice, real spiritual practice. When we talk about living spiritually, when we talk about being spiritual, has to do with the work of recognizing the stuff we picked up along the way and recognizing what stuff continues to prevent us from fully loving ourselves and other. This is the work of loving without the stuff. This is the work of relationship, which we will redefine tonight and next month which I have redefined for 38 years. When you come to the monastery and you say you want to study with me, and that happens, one of the first lessons I teach you is that you will need to relearn everything you've learned so far on how to live, on how to be, and the meaning and purpose of that. And I started out a few moments ago by suggesting that the meaning of life And the purpose of my life and the purpose of your life is to love and to be loved. Is to bring the power of love 
to every moment of our existence. And in order to do that, we need to dismantle a lot of the uh, ideas and images we have about it. Someone once wrote, the two contributions of the 20th century to mankind was romantic love and gunpowder. Okay? And so one of the, I think, barriers between most people when it comes to loving themselves and loving other has to do with this lack of ability to distinguish between sentimentality and love. Most of us love sentimentally. We love those we love. We love ourselves and others conditionally. When we're good, we love ourselves. When we've made achievements, we love ourselves. When, when we feel good about our bodies, we love ourselves. Most of our love is conditional. Not only the love we have for others, but the love we have for ourselves. And this has to do with the notion that love is some kind of sentimental experience, that love is some kind of feeling, that when the feeling is present or when particular conditions are present, then uh, we are able to love ourselves. I really like me when I'm really good. I really like me when I'm feeling good, when I look good, and when my life is working. But what happens to us when things go south? Immediately, we kind of like, you know, see our entire life as a problem. I'll give you an example. Uh, I was this afternoon meditating, and my meditation was, you know, gracefully a gift. It was very blissful, very peaceful, and I was breathing deeply and breathing out, and I was listening to the rain falling on the metal roof at the, at the monastery, and, you know, I could hear some of the birds singing, and someone knocked at the front door. And when I got there was the mailman with two certified letters, and they were from the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, life was terrible. <laughs> I was in trouble. <laughs> You see, oh no, you see, and that's what we do, isn't it? We immediately project into the moment, depending upon the conditions of the moment, whatever experience we end up with. And love, the love we are talking about, transcends all of that. There may be some sentimentality in the expression of love. And I want to talk about that in a moment. But love transcends sentimentality. It transcends our romantic notions just as happiness, as it is defined by the Buddhists, and the word used is contentment, is not dependent upon the circumstances or situations in one's life. True happiness, like true love, is sustainable when it is not dependent upon the things in our lives, not dependent upon the conditions in our lives and the circumstances and situations. So in order for us to arrive at a memory or remembrance, a kind of deja vu of what we brought with us, the love and the ability to love and the ability to nurture ourselves and others, 
we need to, again, strip the onion, and we need to arrive at a much better definition of love for ourselves than we do. So one of the things that happens to us at birth and that, you know, again, begins the lessons of love for us has to do with the way most people, and of course I make exceptions here with people who have had the horrific experience of abuse from their parents and others. And, you know, I continue to talk of this for their benefit, for, uh, you know, for, to help them. So that, is, that aside for the moment, most of us experience this kind of unconditional acceptance of us. We are, you know, when, when Katie was finished at the hospital, we wrapped her up and dressed her up in this beautiful little outfit and wrapped her up in this very, very neat knitted blanket, you know, and I went out and I bought the best car seat and, you know, and we had bought the best crib and we had painted the room and we didn't even know this person. I didn't know it, you know. And so, and we brought her home and, you know, brought her into her room and people came, everybody came to see her and everybody just loved her. And the, the whole time this is going on, she's just laying there, doing nothing. And people are like, oh, how, oh, oh, you see. And she, she just kind of like <laughs> laid there. You know, and I talk about how, you know, when she threw up on me, she didn't kind of like beg me to forgive her, you know, and ask me if I was still going to let her stay. You know, she kind of like didn't care, you know, and we loved her more, you know. And if you know anything about babies and Italians, okay, you can throw up and you can poop on an Italian if you're a baby, and they somehow find that to be cute. Let's see. Let's see. And they talk about it that way. So there's this kind of unconditional embrace, this unconditional acceptance. And that is because in that moment, they help us remember the love we knew and the love we are, that is inherent and the love that we bring with us. And then, of course, as you know, if you're a parent, as time goes on, that all changes. And it changes not because parents stop loving or start to love their children less, or vice versa. It, it begins to change because we kind of fall into this kind of amnesia. We forget, you know, we forget. And one of the things I often talk about in parenting seminars that I've done over the years has to do with remembering that that's the same child you brought home, only bigger, you see. So if you can remember that, act accordingly. Act accordingly. And we all want to be loved that way. We all want to be loved that way. And it just so happens that infants and children have a way of awakening that in us, and then they grow up and they become like us, adults, and we don't like them. And that says something also about all of us. So when we take a look at the expression of love, we need to make another distinction here. People often say to me, well, there's different kinds of love, and I need you to know, in order to understand anything I'm talking about tonight, I don't believe that. I disagree. I don't believe there are different kinds of love. I believe there is one love, and maybe different expressions of it, but there is one love. Love is love. 
Amore is amore, as Italians say. Love is love. And it doesn't matter whether it's the love between a parent and a child, a, pa a friend, two friends, siblings, spouses, partners. It doesn't matter. Love is love. The expression is what we're taking a look at tonight. Because it is the expression that either nurtures that love to grow over time or thwarts that growth. How we express it to each other. And in order to understand how to express it to other and how to take care of ourselves, in order to understand, because that taking care of ourselves, as I said a moment ago, and loving others are synonymous. They, they, they go together. I can only love you to the degree that I've learned to love myself. I will only care about you to the degree that I care about me. Because I cannot give you any more than you can give me what you don't have. So in the end, the love we want is equal to the love we give. And in the end, the love we give is equal to the love we know. The love we give ourselves. The love we nurture and cultivate in our daily living. And when we take a look at the three pillars of what I call the three pillars of love and happiness, the first one has to do with what everybody in 38 years of my life at least, who have come to me for counseling or coaching talks about. Whenever there's a problem in their life, whenever there's a problem at work, whenever there's a problem in their relationship, the problem always comes back to this one place. And the first pillar and the first essential you know, component of loving oneself without the stuff has to do with understanding that what all of us desire more than anything is to live at the level of full self-expression. We all want to be, and we want others to want us to be who we are. And when that gets somehow, you know, uh, kind of like turned over and tossed over and, and involved in most of, most of what our cultural and social goals are, uh, there's where the suffering shows up. So when we talk about loving oneself as necessary for loving other. And when we talk about what is necessary to love ourselves without the stuff, it has to do with, first, the work of knowing ourselves. And most people don't, don't even know who they are. Most people have forgotten who they are. They have spent most of their life striving to become this person or that person, this idea or that idea, this goal or that goal, that they get to a certain age of doing that long enough and you ask them who they are. You know, I talk about this often that if you and I were to meet in a bar one night and, you know, we were to have a martini together and I would meet, you know, be the first time, I would ask you obviously, so who are you? And what would you tell me? You would tell me what you, you know, you would tell me your name, okay? You would obviously tell me, you know, you know where you live maybe. And eventually you would tell me, the things you have, the things you do, the ideas, the beliefs, the opinions, the things you've done in your life, and none of that has to do with who you are. And none of that is you, you see? That's the stuff in your life. So authentic spirituality, like the spirituality of Zen, involves stripping all of that stuff away and getting to that place where you are and discovering who and what that is, you're saying. 
And that is called enlightenment. That is called waking up. Waking up to our original self or our true self as the Buddha uh, talked about it. So the one of the three essential pillars that sustain uh, you know, love in our lives and happiness in our lives has to do with being and not doing. And this is obviously you know, controversial. When you take a look at most people's lives, when they think about loving themselves, they gotta go out and buy a new car or a new dress, okay? They gotta uh, take a vacation, you know. They can't do that here. They gotta go somewhere to do that. They gotta do yoga, they gotta meditate, you see. The very idea of loving oneself without condition, without stuff, is foreign to most people. So love, whether it is for oneself or for other, has very little to do with doing, with as, as, as much as it has to, with very little to do with doing compared to being. It's all about being. It's about being in the relationship and bringing yourself to the relationship. And some of the ways people talk about this is, he never listens to me. She's never there. She doesn't show up. She doesn't understand me. He doesn't, you know, care about me. And that has to do with, you know, the skill of being present. In order to be present, in order for me to even consider what most people talk about when they talk about meditation, you know, particularly mindfulness meditation, which has to do with being present to the moment, in order for me to even consider achieving that, I need to know who's being present, you see? I need to know who that is. And in order to know that, I need to have a quality of honesty with myself that is primary, that is primary. So the first pillar of any fulfilling and satisfying relationship and in, that involves loving oneself, healing oneself, and growing with a, very sen- with a sense of vital vitality and well-being involves with choosing yourself exactly the way you are and exactly the way you are not. And that involves eliminating, as I said earlier, love is inherent, but loving is a skill. And one of the skills necessary to achieve that has to do with learning how to look at oneself and be with oneself without the stuff. Without the stuff. And that's a function of knowing what you've picked up along the way and what you brought with you. What you brought with you, if you've been listening so far, people loved. People, you know, flocked to come see you. People were willing to do anything for you, and so forth. And you, you know, they didn't even know who you were. And you rarely had to do anything. And when we get to that stage in our life where now we have to work for it, that's the stuff that we need to strip away. The second has to do with community. Loving oneself, loving other, is not possible outside community. And the evidence of that is is that we are hardwired for relationships. We are hardwired for relationship. 
We are hardwired like the story of the monkeys. We yearn to be connected to others, whether we call it friendships, whether we call it marriage, whatever we call it, it is our natural yearning to be in relationship. We are hardwired to you know, draw and come to and create union with other. Relationship, or what I prefer, community, is absolutely essential. That is to say, once we have you know, done the work of discovering who we truly are, we need to express that in relationship with others. And I'll come back to that. And the third has to do with living our life as a benefit for others. Being a benefit for others. I will never forget uh, the day that I told my daughter to, you know, you stay in there, you watch television, daddy's going to go clean the dishes. And she jumped out of the chair and said, can I help? I said, children naturally want to help. Because that is what we bring with us. We want to know and we need to know that we are making a contribution to life. And most of the most unhappy people in the world, most people suffering from depression, when you take a look at their daily living, there's not much giving back going on for them. There's not much of a sense of having anything to give back. So these three work together to establish a process whereby we begin to transform and remember the love that we brought with us, the identity that we brought with us, rather than the one that we have developed and contrived over the years, which is a function of the stuff we picked up along the way. So how do we get to that level whereby we are truly you know, being who we are and getting a sense of our wholeness from being what we are and who we are in the world. And that is what spirituality is about. It's about teaching us how to be with ourselves, how to be with the moment, how to be in community with others in a way that love is the connecting factor, is the interconnectedness we share. So love, again, that is solely or exclusively sentimental or romantic is the kind of love, as the, as the uh, prophet said, as the poet said, you know, that creates the same experience that gunpowder has in the world. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. I've been there, done that, you know, and, you know, if I'm lucky, I'll be back there again. But you need to know that I know it's temporary. It's no different than going on vacation. You see, for a while you go on vacation, and there's this, you know, sentimental, you know, thriving with love everywhere we go. So the paradox of life has to do with the fact that in order for us to find our own happiness, our own contentment, we need to learn how to love ourselves unconditionally. We need to learn how to live our lives in such a way that our life and the stuff in our life is supporting us, is nurturing us. And most of us take that for granted. So I'm going to give you an exercise that has to do with what I call the two essential questions. 
the two essential questions are the means by which you begin to practice this going forward from tonight. And they have to do with this. The first essential question has to do with how do I know that to be true? How do I know that to be true? Most of the stuff we've picked up in our life along the way has no factual basis. There is no evidence of it to be true. And yet we hold it and use it in our life as if it is true. So the moment somebody makes it, somebody criticizes our looks, our behavior, the, you know, the quality of our you know, value and our worth, we receive that often as fact. We receive that often as true. And then we go off and we beat ourselves up. It's kind of like, you know, I had to ask myself the question, you know, the, the, the mailman became my teacher in that moment, okay? And what followed was that experience, and I could feel it in my gut, and I could feel the adrenaline running. And then when I, you know, read the, the letter and put it aside and said, I'll let my accountant handle it, and so forth, I began to take a look at, you know, that whole experience for myself. And, you know, why, how could, you know, a letter in the mail or anything, you know, cause that to happen for me? What was that really about? What was that really about? And the same, the same question would be is, why when someone disagrees with you, why when someone criticizes you, do you go where you go? You see? Do we have that experience of questioning our own self-worth? And that has to do with living concepts as true and fact-based. Living concepts as true and fact-based. Now, this works only in conjunction with the second essential question. And the second essential question has to do with this. Is this thought, word, or behavior helping me to get any closer to where I want to be. Does, is this thought, word, or behavior helping me to be content with myself, helping me to get any closer to the happiness that all of us desire and yearn for in life? And if the answer is no, which 99.9% .9 of the time will be, you see, then you dismiss it. Then you, this is what we call mindfulness living. Mindfulness living is taking a look at the thoughts and feelings and emotions in my body going on in the moment and understanding them in a way that I discard those thoughts, I discard those behaviors in my life that do not nurture and support me to be who I am in the world. Because I am at the happiest, I am most happy when I am being who I am. That is why when we take a look at, you know, the, the other components of a very loving and happy life, the first one has to do with doing what you love. Doing what you love is a, is a function of being who you are. And when we are not living as who we are and merely reacting or responding to the concepts in life that we pick up along the way, then happiness is not possible, love is not possible, and relationship is not possible. Because again, I can only love you and be in relationship with you 
equal to how I love me and embrace and accept me. I see you according to how I see me. Any questions so far? I had a job um, before I retired, which I didn't really like very much, uh, but it was a good job, and I did it uh, because I needed to pay for my kids' education. Now, I wasn't happy in that job, but I put up with it because I had a, a goal which was to earn money to pay for my kids. Um, now, I could have done something that made me happy, but I wouldn't have gotten paid as much. So I guess what I'm saying is that sometimes we do things in our life that are not directed towards making ourselves happy. But for some goal that has to do perhaps with the uh, nurturing of your children or other. Okay. So the question that I would have for you is how does Beth learn to be content with a choice she freely made to go this path as opposed to that path? And that's what, you know, again, the stuff that shows up is the craving and the desiring for the job that would be more in tune and more in harmony with what I love to do, okay? So what I would say to you is what the mafia says to each other, <laughs> this is the business we've chosen, okay? So when we make choices in our life and we choose them, we choose that path, then the work at hand is to learn to be content with that choice, okay? And the stuff that we're talking about tonight is what, is what shows up in being where you don't want to be, okay? Because you yearn to be somewhere else. So I've been down that road too. I've, I've, be, I've done jobs in my lifetime too that I would have preferred not doing. You know, I was born into you know, a, a family that had an established business. You know, pe people say, you know, I tell people often, I was born in a truck, okay? And before I even came into the world, while I was still in my mother's womb, my parents had already decided who I was going to be and so forth. So I know the experience of being where you would prefer not to be. In those moments, the work is to step back and, you know, I, you know choose to be responsible for that choice. Okay, and that's how we that's how we've gained the leverage over being where we don't want to be. Because yes, of course, there's going to be times in our lives where that is that's the case, and there's there's no avoiding it. You know, it's kind of like uh, you know your life's going along, and you've got the monastery is you know running, and things are going well, and a meteor falls on it. Okay, what do you do? <laughs> no, kind of like that. So uh, life does not have our agenda, and I appreciate, you know, the question. And the answer is, again, stepping back, this is the business we've chosen, you know, kind of like that. 
and learning to live with that choice. And not only live with it, but to really choose it. Uh, the other day, someone brought up in, in their counseling with me the whole concept of accepting. I don't, I don't buy that. I don't think accepting things work. I think choosing them is what works. Are you talking about intention? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Intention, which is different from goals and objectives. Okay. So what is my intention here? And how can I take this unwanted circumstance and situation and transform it into something that will nurture and support me to be where I want to be? So like, for example, most of my life when I've worked in my family's business, I worked there to have the money to pay for the bills to have the monastery. And that's how I looked at it. Okay? This is where the money comes from to make this possible. And that's how it becomes, you know, that's where the contentment comes from that. So you get to do what you don't like doing, but you use that to do what you do like doing. That's why most people uh, have difficulty with their careers and the jobs that they're in, not because they really don't want to be there, but they don't know how to be in a job. Okay? Again, as I said earlier, our culture and society measures our identity and our worth by what we do and what we have. And most people do jobs like that. They don't, they, they don't see that the, the purpose of a job is, you know, like the Germans say, uh, we Germans work to live. You Americans live to work. Mm -hmm. You know Like that. No, like that. So, uh, yeah. Love does, is not, you know, a function of having everything exactly the way you want it. In fact, as I've been saying all night, it transcends the circumstances and situations. So loving myself is the ability to be where I would prefer not to be and transform that experience into something that nurtures and benefits me and others. Okay? Is that helpful? Yeah, thank you. Anyone else? So, how do I begin to uh, correct the behavior, if you will, how do I begin to choose behavior that is nurturing and supportive in my life? And again, it has to do with the question, for me at least, it has to do with the question, how do I know this to be true? And is this thought, this word, this opinion, this belief, this idea about life, is it supporting me to get any closer to where I really want to be? And it then takes a willingness on the part of the being to act with integrity there, to act with integrity there. To act with integrity means to, put, to follow a particular way of being strictly. You know, a strict adherence to a particular way of being is the definition of integrity. So I make the decision that I want to do something in my life. I want to be more spiritual. I want to do something with my life, and I want to practice more spiritually. And if you've been listening tonight, that has to do with working on my life. It has nothing to do with changing the world out here and fixing the world. It has to do here, because if I don't find the happiness that I'm looking for within me, I'm not going to find it anywhere else. 
I'm not going to find it anywhere else. If I can't find the solutions for my life within me, where do you expect to find them? You see? So the work is, again, how do I nurture, how do I support my, my beingness in a way that makes me happy, and when we're happy, I kind of like make you happy, you know? Evidence shows, scientific evidence shows that happier people in the workplace produce better, okay, make the more money, and climb up the ladder, okay? People like happy people, you saying? We like to be around happy people, and so forth. So somehow, the paradox is that my own personal happiness somehow contributes to the happiness of the world. Because when I'm happy, or back to Beth's question, when I'm going to a job, for example, that I want to go to, that I've chosen to go to, that I've recognized whether it is the ideal job or not, that this is somehow helping me to get to where I want to be, and I go there with that attitude, I will work with my, the quality of my work will, will excel. And that's, there's much evidence to that fact. That is why a lot of the smarter corporations, places like Apple and, and, and other places, went, go to great lengths to take a look at how to support their employees to be happy in the workplace. So they put in gyms and they put in, ca you know, you know, little cafeterias that are designed to look like the coffee places they go to. They make the environment available to, to the uh, employee to be happy. So if I am not willing, it begins with, you know, for me it begins with the question, you know, do I really want to take care of myself? Do I really want to have the experience of vitality and wholeness in my life? Because the first thing that comes up for most people when we talk about this privately is, you don't understand. I've got all this stuff to do, you know, and I've got all these responsibilities. And I say, you don't understand. You've got all that stuff to do, and you've got all that responsibilities, because you've got all that stuff to do, and you've got all those responsibilities. You're saying. But I ask people also, at the same time, how much of that doing and how much of that, you know, those responsibilities are getting you or your family closer to the experience of happiness and contentment and love? How much of that is doing it? Most people, the answer is usually not too much. Not too much. So it's kind of like Lily Tomlin once wrote, uh, I, I was sitting one night watching the news as I regularly have, and commented, when is somebody going to do something about that? And then I recognized and realized I was somebody. You know? So if I want my life to change, I need to change my life. I need to take the steps to change my life. And in the beginning, that is difficult because it is foreign to us. Taking care of oneself and creating one's environment to be conducive for a more nurturing experience is foreign to most of us, is foreign to most of us, because most of us has come, have come to define our lives at, you know, as you know, more, better, and different pursuit. You know, that, that whole uh, concept or context of life. So we need to have a context shift in order to make this happen. 
And the context shift is, if I want to love my daughter in a way that she grows up, that will be directly a function of how much I love myself. So, for example, I tell my daughter every day, and I've given her the exercise to recite four mantras in the morning and at night. When we're together, we do it religiously. So when she gets up in the morning and I'm making her breakfast and we sit down to eat breakfast, and throughout the day I will spontaneously do this as well, and definitely at night before she goes to sleep, I will say to her, because she's learned these mantras, you know, she's memorized them, so all I have to say to her is, I, and she follows through, and she says, I am wonderful. <coughs> I am beautiful. I am capable. I am loved. And I came up with those mantras by taking a look at what was, what I discovered was essential for my beingness. Okay? And I want my daughter to never have to depend on or think she needs to depend on some external resource for all of that. You see? So I hope that what I'm doing with her does for her what it did for me. I hope that she goes through her life knowing she's already wonderful. And she doesn't need more or better to become more wonderful. You see? And that she's already beautiful, and she doesn't need to beat her body up to meet some expectation of beauty in our society. And that she is capable, so that she never thinks that, you know, she can't do what she wants to do. And last but not least, so that she never goes searching all over the planet for love, because she knows she's already loved, you see. And those are what I call the four essential qualities of raising children, four essential components, the lessons we need to teach our children if we want to raise healthy, wholesome, and capable children to meet the challenges in the world today. But you can only come to that, you can only, you know, come to that mantra if you have a commitment to nurturing yourself in order for you to be a good parent to your child, in order for you to be a good citizen, in order for you to be you know, a benefit to others. It begins with living a life where you are capable of being all of that in the world. Because again, you can only give what you have. So it's no different than wanting to run a marathon. You don't just jump into the street and start running. You prepare yourself and you train yourself to be able to run that marathon. That's what this is about. Loving oneself without the stuff is preparing oneself to be able to live in the world with all of its challenges and uncertainty, with all victorious mastery. Not because you have enough money to do that, not because you have enough, you know, stuff to do that, but because you have learned to be who you are, and that who you are is already wonderful, already beautiful, already capable, already loved. I believe that if all of us learned that lesson, including me, when I was a kid, uh, I wouldn't have gone searching as much as I did, including the search that got me here. <laughs> Any questions? Hi, kid. Where should I ask a question? Mm. Um, 
Do you believe that it is our moral duty to be happy? Yes. Okay. And do you believe that it is the right thing to do to fake it if you're not? Just like Beth, I, I dread going to my job every day. I'm very, very grateful for it. Um, it's a lot of, uh, it's just boring for me. It's rewriting long documents. I make a lot of money and I'm very grateful. But I'm miserable. But when somebody comes along and says, hey, can you tell you doing it? It will happen maybe 70 times a day. I'll, I'll do it fabulous. You know, yeah. a lot. Um, but I feel that it makes them happier. Mm. And maybe it'll reflect back on me a little mm. happiness. But Well, I'm hearing several things in your sharing. Okay? I'm hearing I don't like my job, but I'm very grateful for it. Okay? I don't like my job, but I'm very grateful for it. So when we get to what I've identified, again, as the six practices... The last one reads like this, and it's not necessarily in that order. Appreciate what you have and stop dwelling or craving what you don't have. Okay? So the way I do the things I would prefer not to do, and you're a parent and I'm a parent, and we don't have to go to our you know, job workplace to find that. We find that you know, there are times you have to be a certain way as a parent, okay, and so forth. So when I have to, like, really be strict and disciplining Katie who's four years old and she does what four-year-olds do when they don't get what they want, okay? You know, I focus on I love this kid and if she doesn't learn this lesson, you know, what will she learn? So my advice to you is if that you need to focus on the gratitude, okay? When you go to work, focus on the gratitude. Why are you grateful for this job? You don't need to answer that to me. And focus on that. Focus on the gratitude. And you will find the joy and the happiness in that. Okay? In that. So when I, you know, like part of mindfulness practice has to do with staying in the present moment. And the mind wants to wander off worrying about the future. Okay? And when it does that, the practice is to bring it back and... You know, in the context of our discussion, focus on what you have and appreciate that rather than what you hope to have in the future or don't have now. And you'll find the joy in that appreciation. Appreciate yourself. Appreciate what you have accomplished. Don't take it for granted. Appreciate what you've done with your daughter in the, in, you know, we both know what I'm talking about and the difficult circumstances you've had to do it in. Focus on that and stay away with, uh, he sucks, my boss. Okay? Stay away from that. It doesn't matter. Did I know him well? Do I know him well? Keep looking at each other, so I think you're working together. No, we work together. Oh, okay, I, okay. I, I like my boss. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, what, but whatever. Whatever it is at work you say, I hate going to, stay out of there. That doesn't matter. If you have gratitude for the job, focus on that. That's where you give your attention, okay? I don't like, you know, uh, I, since my heart attacks, I've been working hard to get healthier. And one of the things I've had to do if I want to live is to go to the gym and work out, okay? If I want to live, I need, but literally, because the treatment they've put me through requires, even though it's been successful, that I continue to exercise every day. If I stop exercising, they said you'll be back on the table, okay? I don't like what I feel like 
when I go do that stuff, okay? I don't. And when I get stuck in, you know, like, oh, I gotta, I gotta drive there. I mean, my mind does this whole thing, you know, because, you know, where I live and where the gym is takes me about 20 minutes to get to. So I'm thinking, oh, I gotta drive all the way there, and then I've gotta walk fast or run on that treadmill or that track and do all, and it hurts, and I feel tired, okay? When I focus on that, okay, I never get there. And if I don't get there, I get sick again and I die, okay? So what I focus on is why I'm going there. And that is I've, I have a daughter that I adore and worship and want to see get married. That's what I focus on, okay? So that's where, that's how, like back to Beth's original question, that's how we learn to transform what we don't like to do into really beneficial for ourselves. That's how we transform that. Okay? Thank you. Anyone else? Hi. Hi. <laughs> so to kind of summarize, and just, just the last part is where I need clarification. Once some of the, you know, once the stuff is is neutralized, is dealt with, is understood, discarded, discarded, understood, discarded. Mm -hmm. So you're saying the love will just sort of automatically come forward. Yes, the love will surface naturally because the Buddhists, what the Buddha believed is that's what we are, and when we when we are what he called ignorance, when we kind of like fall into this consciousness slumber that he talked about, all right, uh, that all gets covered over by the stuff, okay? So all you have to do in order for that to surface is to remove the stuff that's keeping it down, you see? So the more and more I remove the stuff in my life, whatever that is, the thoughts, the words, the behavior, the activities, the goals, whatever that is, that continues to prove not to be nurturing, not to nurture the ground for me to be at the level of full self-expression. Once that's all been cleared away, that surfaces. We talk in Zen not about becoming a Buddha, we talk in Zen about realizing you are a Buddha. And in order for you to realize that, in order for that to happen for you, we need to strip away all of the learned images you have of yourself. See what I'm saying? Yeah. What evidence is there that that's so? The evidence has to do with what, you know, as I talked about earlier, and you were there, okay, and you've done, the, what, 32 years of it. The evidence has to do with, you know, what His Holiness the Dalai Lama often refers to. He says, my mother was my first guru, okay? She taught me compassion, okay? The moment I was born, she held me in my arms. She didn't know who I was. You know, but she did. So when we take a look at human behavior at birth, when there are no complexes where you've got to do the emergency stuff, of course, you know, there is this, we, we, we recognize, uh, scientifically, we know that infants recognize their mother's voice naturally. We know that, okay? So there's scientific evidence for that, that a child recognizes its mother's voice. 
it listens for that voice. So the evidence is that we, we move towards relationship. We, we crave for compassion, okay, or what we might call love also. That's the evidence there. And the evidence is that in 2,700 years, the practices that the Buddha laid down in all the different schools of, Buddha, you know, of, of Buddhism, have been, that's been the objective, and it has proven to work. That's the results of that practice, okay? Because what keeps us stuck and prevents us from being happy, back to like Denise's example, her thoughts about the job prevent her from finding contentment in the job. We move the thoughts or cease indulging those thoughts and, and focus on what you appreciate, and it naturally arises on its own. She doesn't have to make herself happy in the workplace. So spirituality is the practice of stripping away, as Rumi said, first discovering and then dismantling the barriers that you have, the mental and emotional barriers that you have created in your lifetime that prevents you from seeing how wealthy you really are and how wonderful life really is. I'm absolutely convinced that my daughter will forget she's wonderful, beautiful, capable, and loved when some guy convinces her she, he need, she needs him. And then I'm going to hunt him down and kill him. <laughs> like that. Okay. So. Anyone else? Any other questions? Hi. Uh, okay, there's two, two answers to that. I'll go to the second one first. The second one is what I call Nike Buddhism, okay? Nike Buddhism is just do it, okay? So when you discover, okay, a kind of, you know, conversation you have in your head, uh, words and behavior, okay, when you discover whatever that is n as you know, being that, being the barrier, not nurturing, not, you know, kind of like holding you back and keeping you stuck, the practice is to stop doing that. So when the Buddha was asked one day by a academic scholar to explain to him what Buddhism was, he said, I've read about it, I've heard about it, but I don't understand it. Can you tell me simply what it is? And he said to the scholar, I will tell you, but you won't get it. Okay, I'm paraphrasing there, right? So here, here, here's what he told him. When you find what works, do it. When you find what doesn't work, don't do it. Okay? And that's where Nike Buddhism comes in for most of us because we're the mind that has accumulated this stuff and come to believe it to be necessary for your life. Okay? When ego looks at that stuff, it's not going to let go easily. It's not going you know, if you wait until you think it's a good thing to do, it's not going to happen. So in my life, the practice is, if this does not nurture, if this does not support me to be the best teacher I can be, to be the best parent I can be, it goes. Okay? And that includes people in my life. That includes people in my life. So it's about removing the toxins. Okay? So first you need to be aware of the stuff 
and then you need to do, you know, take inventory and clean house. You need to empty the closet so you can come out. <laughs> okay? Thank you. Hi, Ellen. Hi. I, for me, I think it's easier to work on contentment rather than happiness. To me, I think the word happiness is loaded in this society, but yeah. contentment is... Yeah, and I agree with you. Uh, contentment is the real happiness. The word happiness, as you said, I, I'm right there with you. We're not talking about the happiness society has come to identify, having a good time, the absence of you know, you know, discomfort and stuff. We're talking about contentment, which is the ability to remain confident and grounded no matter the circumstances or situation. And I agree with you. That's that really, when you get down to the work of it, you know, it's kind of like uh, I tell people: I gave up happiness a long time ago. Too much work. You know, too much work. And I gave up making other people happy a way long time ago, because that stuff will kill you. Thank you. Anyone else? Beth. Why don't you use the word equanimity? I mean, it is contentment, is equanimity. Yeah, contentment right? is equanimity. Equanimity is the verb for contentment, okay? So to live in equanimity is to choose everything, okay? To choose it. So I bring my full attention to the workplace that I don't like going to just as much as I would if I did like going to it. And that's what we mean by equanimity, okay? So um, when we talk about Contentment, we're talking about the same thing, but we're just coming at it from a different angle. Okay? But equanimity, again, is the verb, while contentment is the noun. You know, I'm learning to be content, is the famous Zen saying. So, how do you learn that with equanimity? By practicing equanimity. You know, it's like I say to my daughter sometime Daddy will always love you. I always love you. But I may not always feel that way. <laughs> And that's, that's the problem in most people's relationships. They don't know the difference between the feeling, and we're back to the use of the word sentimentality. They don't know the difference between sentimentality and love. Okay, Most people identify love as sentimentality. So in order for me to love Beth, i got to feel that. You know and if I don't feel that, I apparently don't love Beth. Okay, But that's not love. Just like back to Ellen, the happiness that most people pursue, you know, the pursuit of happiness, uh, has nothing to do with happiness. It has to do everything with gratification, you know. Whether, and it doesn't matter what it is you're pursuing, pursuing all the yoga postures so that you become a good yogi or yogini, or meditation so that you feel peaceful and, and all of that. Whatever it is you're craving for, you believe will get you there outside of yourself, uh, that's where the problems lie. Because I don't trust a spirituality that doesn't tax you any more than I trust a relationship where everybody's always happy. <laughs> I hated the Brady Bunch. <laughs> and Donna Reed. <laughs> Any other questions? Hi. So another way of expressing what you had said earlier is that you realize that in, uh, there are life-giving people 
and situations and life draining people and situations. But to focus on those people and situations which are life giving, but to stay away from the life draining people and situations because they'll suck all the life out of you. Yeah, sometimes they're called spiritual vampires. Okay? So, and it's not, it's not as much as staying away from them than, ex, you know, not expecting anything different. You know, I talk a lot about having a thief over for dinner. All right? There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with having a thief over for dinner. You just don't let them near your valuables. Okay? So... We're always going to have those toxic personalities in our lives. I mean, my mother's Sicilian. There's nothing I can do about that, okay? (laughs) Always going to be that way. And her and I began to have a wonderful relationship when I ceased expecting her to be other than Sicilian, okay? Like that. So it's really like that. If you can remove yourself from those persons, then yes. But it's more like... Spend more time with the people that nurture you and lesser time with the people that don't. Okay? Like that. It's all about exposure. We don't want our kids to expose themselves to the stuff that harm them. Why do we do it ourselves? You know? Any other questions? So we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we're going to take a look at the actual application of the two essential questions and uh, go over the six practices of those questions. Thank you. This little scene undid me, for here was an ultimate lesson Without any intent or knowledge of itself, this little duck, asleep in the womb of the world, was a deep and wordless teacher. If only I, if only we, could surrender this completely to the mystery of life, we would be carried and renewed. It was obvious that the duck would wake and swim its little patterns on the water, but this little creature's ability to let go so completely allowed its time on earth to be filled and saturated. It just for a few minutes, with a depth of peace that only surrender can open us to. Only rarely have I let go this completely, yet those moments of total surrender have thoroughly changed my life. When struck with cancer, I somehow fell from the ledge of my fear and entered the operating room like this little duck. It was the threshold to the other side. When lonely and afraid to reach out, I have somehow collapsed repeatedly into the ocean of another's love, and it has cleansed my weary heart. And in my search now for wisdom to live by, I stumble at times and surrender what I think I know so completely that I find adrift in a deeper way that is neither wise nor unwise, but simply life-affirming. So one of the problems in our context we call love and loving ourselves and others has to do with the most uh, profound, um, if you will, uh, wrench in the mechanism. 
and that is expectation. And when we talk about Nike Buddhism, just do it, it exists for at least the practitioner in a much greater way. And uh, Mark Nepo's words just there uh, speak to that. It has to do with a willingness to give up our need to know for sure. Love is mystery. Life is mystery. And all we need to do to enter that mystery, all we need to do to experience life at its fullest before we die, is to do the work of loving and do the work of living. And as I was saying to Len, everything naturally rises because that's what's there. There's nothing else there but that. When we remove all of the barriers, the mental and emotional barriers and behaviors that we have constructed over the years, what is left is what was always there underneath that, and it rises to the surface. So in order for any of this to work, in order for me to love myself in such a way that my experience in the workplace, my experience in this difficult circumstance, my experience with you know fear about tomorrow, whatever uh, it may be, in order for it to work, I need to shift the context of my life from knowing to not knowing, okay? Knowing to not knowing. So one of the things uh, that a very dear friend of mine and I were talking about the other night uh, has to do with our discussion on nobody knows the future. Nobody knows the future. You haven't a clue. I've had a personal experience where people that I was training and counseling six years ago who moved out of this area called me uh, a couple of weeks ago and said, do you remember us and you changed our lives and you saved my life, now I want to give something back to you. So we never know what's coming in the future. We never know what's ahead. All we know is this moment. And as the Buddha said, I cannot change the world and I cannot change anybody, I can only change myself. So the real power we are looking for in life has to do with our own life, our inner world, and we apply this, you know, loving without the stuff by just loving without the stuff. So, when we, when we apply the two essential questions, first, how do I know this to be true, okay? First of all, do I know it to be true, and how do I know it to be true? We must ask that question consistently and regularly before we give anything the power to be true in our life. Do I know this to be true, and how do I know that to be true? Whether it is a thought that we you know, repeatedly indulge whenever circumstances and situations come up, how do I know that to be true? How do I know it? And most of the time we discover that we, the only answer we have to the question is, someone told me that. They told me that. I read it somewhere. I heard it uh, one night at Zen Chat, you see. Even the Buddha himself, at the end of each of his teachings, would say to the crowd, don't believe me. Do not do this just because I've told you it. Find out for yourself whether it is true or not, I say. Find out for yourself. 
So we take a lot for granted, and the stuff that we've accumulated along, along the way, it's kind of like the stuff in the closet. We know it's there, okay? And we know we gotta go to the closet and clean it out sometime, but why don't we just let it stay in the closet, <laughs> you see? But, it's, but there's no relief from that. You know, uh, one day I gotta go to the closet, one day I gotta go to the closet. One day, there's no relief from that until we go to the closet and clean it out. So we call that just doing it. Whenever you find yourself trapped in some critical conversation about yourself or some other, the question is, how do I know that to be true? How do I know that to be true? And the second question is, is my indulging this story, this thought, this behavior, getting me any closer to where I want to be? Is it, is it nurturing? Or is it debilitating? You see? Is it liberating me up and freeing me up to be who I truly am? Or is it keeping me stuck? And if it's keeping me stuck, you know, back to, I liked what Denise said, we have a moral obligation to get unstuck. Because we're no benefit to others when we bring our stuckness to them. Okay? In fact, my stuckness often prevents me from seeing what is necessary in the moment to make the moment whole or complete. You see? So we have a moral obligation, if you will, to unstuck ourselves. So the six practices that I've reflected on over, uh, over the last 38 years has to do with creating a context for love to show up. And again, for love to first show up for myself. So I took a look at those things when I was most happy, most satisfied. And obvious or not obvious, the first practice is to, is to invest in what you like doing. Do what you love to do. Do more of what you love to do. Not just when you can do it, not just when you have time to do it. Make it something to do on a more regular basis. The happiness that we naturally um, uh, experience in those moments has to do with something much larger than the thing we're doing. You know, it's not like, you know, surfing has a magical power or climbing or running, okay? What's going on for the being in that moment is a sense of liberation, a sense of freedom. And Buddha nature, if you will, for the sake of uh, not coming up with any better word for it, Buddha nature is at its best when it is liberated, when it is free, okay? It's kind of like you take an animal that operates solely out of Buddha nature, if you will, it knows only itself as it is, and you cage that animal and prevent it from fully expressing itself, it's going to become malicious, it's going to either do harm to itself or to you the next time you open the cage, if you will. And we all get like that. We all get grumpy, and most of the times our grumpiness is because we're not doing enough of what we like to do. This might surprise you, but maybe not. Play a lot. Play a lot. Play. And most of us, you know, we're adults, and we have forgotten how to play. We don't know how to play, you see. 
And I'm not talking about, you know, buying the baseball ticket and going watching a ball game. I'm talking about playing. So here's, here's what my, my guru, my four-year-old daughter has taught me about playing, okay? So when she's with me, and you're not there, if you will, when she's with me, she loves to dance, okay? And she's, you know, she loves to think of herself as a ballerina. And so when she wants to do ballerina dancing, she wants daddy to do ballerina dancing with her too. That's it. And it's not enough that I do the ballerina dancing with her. I also must wear a tutu. <laughs> and so forth. So there are times you may come to the monastery and find me tippy-toeing in a tutu. <laughs> and, you know, just like any man, when I first started doing this with her, it's kind of like, oh, I don't want to wear a tutu and I don't want to do ballerina stuff. But this is this was... You know, this was an opportunity to be happy with my daughter, and you need to know that I love doing ballerina stuff and wearing a tutu now. <laughs> and that's what I mean by playing a lot. In order to really play a lot, you need to play in a way that you are stripping away all the barriers that prevent you from laughter and from looking foolish and from just having a good old time. You need to do that. And uh, I remember uh, having this conversation with my dear friend Rabbi Simon one day, and he was telling me that in the Hasidic tradition of Judaism, uh, once a year the rabbi is required to isolate himself from the community and to do the stuff he would never do the rest of the year. Okay, And that's very much like a practice in Japanese monasteries. The, the job for cleaning the shithouse is always given to the Roshi. And I mean shithouse, I mean outhouse. Okay, so the job for cleaning the shithouse is always given to the Roshi and what have you. So that, again, we never take ourselves too seriously. And playing a lot, especially wearing a tutu and tipping around on your toes, has the power of doing that. Okay? Scienti scientists have, this next thing, scientists have discovered has a lot to do with how we age and the quality of aging and it's what I call keep exploring keep exploring I want I observe my daughter you know when we're out in nature and how she goes over and takes a look at a flower or how she goes over and picks up you know a stick or a log or looks under the log or looks into the pond we have there with fish and frogs there is this exploratory, you know, there is this explorer in her that is coming out. And she is at the happiest when she's making these new discoveries. So keep learning. Keep exploring. The day you stop, the day you think you know it all, you're dead. Okay? In fact, the day you're dead, that's when you will know it all. You know, what comes next, if you will. I say. Keep exploring. This next one is something that the monks and I have talked about over the years at great length because it is the single most difficult one, I think, for most people because we have been so culturized into the notion that we have to keep going, keep doing, keep producing, keep consuming, that I think that this is the reason why people do not appreciate the powerful, powerful lesson that community has for us. 
And when I think of community, I think of the fact that when the Buddha set up the uh, monastic communities uh, some 2,700 years ago, he he created the the um, con- he created the, the the lesson of community for both the monk and the lay person. You're saying, and community is the guiding light. It is the spirit, and by community we mean being in relationship with others. So if you're going to play, for example, play with others. And if you're going to play with others, play to really make others laugh, if you will. Other areas of your life, by community, we need to be in relationship. So those of you who are still practicing, quote, spirituality and haven't found yourself a community to be part of, you need to do that because... The Buddha taught that. The Buddha said the three refuges, and if you're going to achieve enlightenment, you need to take refuge in your Buddha nature. You need to take refuge in the teachings and apply them in your life. And last but not least, he said, taking refuge in the Sangha. Having that group of people you practice with, who you can rely on, who you can contribute to, who accepts your contribution as valuable, you know, and so forth, and who is there to help you and take care of you and contribute to you. Community is essential. If you don't have that, get it. Do things that are meaningful. By meaningful is, again, my daughter is so happy when she can help me do anything. So by doing things that are meaningful, I mean be a benefit. If you've got to do something, do it in a way that it is benefiting life, benefiting others. We love to be involved in a way that we know we have something to contribute. And the only way we get to know that we have something to contribute and the gift that we are by wanting to contribute is to do meaningful stuff. You know, Do something meaningful. meaningful. And last but not least, appreciate, as I said to Denise earlier, appreciate, appreciate what you have and stop dwelling or craving what you don't have. Most of us will find that all of the happiness that we've been searching for and, and, and you know, consuming for and chasing for comes when we appreciate what we do have. We, you know, it, it changes the topography. You know? So for me, it's those moments when you know, I'm in Orohatsu Sashin with my students and you know we've been sitting for hours and it's late at night we still got a couple hours to go and everybody is like right there sitting and I know that their body aches and I know that they're tired because mine aches and I'm tired but we're still together or it's those moments when you know my daughter just is whatever she's doing is just lighting up my joy and I stop and I think I may not have any money but I'm the wealthiest man in the world and that's really the, the byproduct of appreciating what you have. So you need to go home and take a look at what you have. And every day you need to wake up in the morning. And somehow, a friend of mine, what she does is that she wakes up in the morning and she writes her gratitudes down every day. She literally sits down at her computer and lists what she's grateful for. Okay, And the focus, again, is for what she has, not what she wants to have. And, and all of that. So, so the power of gratitude is best um, defined by the ancient Japanese masters who used to say to their students, you can sit at the foot of Mount Fuji 
until Fuji rumbles and the earth drops beneath you. Without gratitude, nothing is accomplished. You see? Without gratitude, nothing is accomplished. If we can begin to approach every moment of life with gratitude, we not only transform that moment, we heal the world. We heal the world. And we help to awaken others to see you already got everything you're looking for. You just don't see it. The kingdom of God is at hand, and you just don't see it. You know? No, the pure land is everywhere, the Buddha said. This is the body of the Buddha, he said. This is it. This is it. If you don't see it here, you're not going to see it anywhere else. So, they can be either concepts, which is how, which is how it exists for most people, what we just talked about. It can be just another concept for you when you leave here tonight. Or you can make, you know, back to Beth's uh, use of the word, intention. What I call intention uh, is what I call declaration, where I declare this to be so. And if you don't understand declaration, I often point people back to 1776, when those guys declared, you know, that all men are created equal and that we are endowed with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They didn't know that. They just declared it. In the same way when Jack Kennedy said, we are going to the moon. They hadn't even gotten there scientifically yet. And he said, we're going to go to the moon in this decade. And we went to the moon. That's the power of declaration. So you can leave here tonight as, as someone who declares, I'm going to love myself without the stuff. And that involves just going home and beginning to take inventory of your internal stock and your external stock. Uh, uh, one of my monks who had been with me for about 28 years, Mitsumiko, uh, she, she will tell you that over the years she has often laughed and gotten ready every time she's seen me clearing stuff out of the monastery and cleaning. Okay, because what has always fought, she'll tell you, something big's coming, he's cleaning, <laughs> he's clearing out stuff. And that's, that's really what it is for me. I find that the more I clear out internally, the more I'm able to let go externally. So if you want to get rid of that stuff once and for all, mm -hmm. you need to clear out the stuff within you. You need to discover what it is, take inventory, and discard the stuff that doesn't support you. And you need to do it in the same way. You know how, like, you go over to that one item and you, th you go over with the intention, okay, this is going to the goodwill, and then you got it in your hands, and you go, well, I really like this. <laughs> you see? We do that with the internal stock as well, you know? Well, if I stop doing this, people won't like me. You see? That's not how you declare. How you declare is you take it, you put it in the bag. You take it, you discard it. That's how you do it. And like the duck, you haven't a clue as to whether or not the water is going to support you or not. You just go to sleep with that decision, with that decision. Those are the options you have in leaving here tonight. And before you do, I want to read to you the lyrics from one of my favorite songs. And uh, whenever I get concerned about love in my life, I turn it on and listen to it. Uh, it's titled, Love is Christmas. 
I don't care if the house is packed or the strings of light are broken. I don't care if the gifts are wrapped or there's nothing here to open. Love is not a toy and no paper will conceal it. Love is simply joy that I am home. I don't care if the carpet's stained, we've got food upon our table. I don't care if it's going to rain, our little room is warm and stable. Love is who we are, and no season can contain it. Love would never fail, or love would never fall for that. Let love lead us. Love is Christmas. Why so scared that you'll mess it up when perfection keeps you haunted? All we need is your best, my love. That's all anyone ever wanted. Love is how we do. Let no judgment overrule it. Love, I look to you and I sing. Let love lead us. Let love lead us. Love is Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you for the privilege of being here. Oh, if you would like, uh, I made these up for you, so if you want this to remind yourself, come and get it. Before you leave, I do have a couple announcements that uh, Rhonda would beat me if I forget to make. And that is on June 1st, we still have a scheduled and planned one-day yoga and meditation retreat that is going to take place in Morristown at the Friends Meeting House on the campus of that beautiful Friends School on the main street in Morristown. And <clears throat> you can register by going to the Yoga for Living uh, website, and the registration link is on there. And just do it. And come and spend a day with us. It will include a healthy lunch, being around nurturing and sustaining people, me and Rhonda if you will, and everyone else. So that's June 1st. If you haven't, in the, or if you already have, you probably received the flyer for the uh, training program. You can uh, inquire about that by emailing me. Uh, we are, there are 10 to 12 spots available. So first come, first serve, and like everything else, just do it. Just, just register, get into the training, and just do it. And that's, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Good night. Thank you.